Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more. The fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com. 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Hello and welcome to Premier League All Access with me, Sam Matterface and TalkSport's Chief Football Correspondent, Alex Crook. Once again, we are joined by the international football expert who has taken off his lederhosen uh, to return to the UK after watching Bayer Leverkusen and Xabi Alonso dismantle Harry Kane's Bayern Munich. We'll get into that and a whole lot more over the next 45 minutes. Here's what's to come. Pascal Gross with this penalty, right-footed, scores! Sends Vicario the wrong way! It's Liverpool 3, Burnley 1, it's Darwin Nunez who's got it. It's another wonderful header. Tony inside the penalty area, 12 yards out, the most comfortable of right-footed finish. It's Wolves nil, Brentford 2. Luton 1, Sheffield United 3, probably all over now. Vinny Souza has got the goal. Oh, as Fulham make it 3-1, it's Rodrigo Nunez. And just like that, Fulham restore their two goals. Goal advantage across the face of goal. Johnson! Spurs win it! Brighton are beaten by the last attack of the game. Second goal for Bruno Gimaresh. It's Forest 2, Newcastle 3. Oh, this is the icing on the cake for Arsenal. Declan Rice has scored on his return to London Stadium and he scored an absolute screamer. West Ham nil, Arsenal 6. McTominay with a fantastic header and United, this could really fire their Champions League challenge. Villa 1, Manchester United 2. And Kev, we will get to uh, your trip to Germany in just a second because it's significant for Liverpool and we'll discuss that in just a moment. But first of all, Crook, are you OK? Uh, because he had a serious injury over the weekend. Kevin, he injured himself playing a very competitive sport. He was uh, playing balloon football on a dance floor uh, with his <laughs> kids on Thursday oh, night or no. Friday night. And um, he, you know, because he is so huge... He, uh, he went to take a, a stunning balloon-free kick in a crucial moment of the match, toppled over and smashed himself into the floor. Now, we still can't work out how he fell face first when you're kicking a football, but anyway, I'm sure there's a reason for it. It's got to be something to do with weight distribution. Uh, Crookster, um, are you OK? That's the main thing. No, I'm in absolute agony. Um, what have you heard? I don't, think I've bro- I don't think I've broken a rib, but certainly they're badly bruised and... Uh, lugging the uh, the equipment around London uh, for Tottenham on Saturday and West Ham 
yesterday, not the easiest grounds to get to, as you know. Uh, I don't think that's done many favours. I even I even skipped a Super Bowl party, uh, my annual game of uh, American football on Sunday night because I was just in too much discomfort. So yeah, not good. It's up there with your uh, your broken back, I think. Is it? Is it? Is, well, actually, up there with a broken back, what you falling over and hurting some ribs. The good news is, is that apparently you can get spare ones of those, uh, so you'll be all right. Um, um, I can't. Use, has anyone got a violin? The violin. How did he fall forwards? I don't know. That's why I can't work out. Biomechanically, as someone who studied sports science, I can't work out how it actually happened. And where were your arms? To, to <laughs> he says he couldn't blow. break his fall because I was holding a pint glass and I was conscious <laughs> a that I'd spill the pint and b that I'd fall on it. So I had to use my hands to sort of push the pint away. My my brother said it was like a goalkeeper making a save to you know to That's save as amazing. much of the beer as I could. Wow, <laughs> very bad goalkeeper. Listen, we'll just try not to be uh, too funny because the last thing we'd want to deliver is too many rib ticklers. Um, Kev. Um, could you uh, tell us uh, very briefly about your trip to Germany? We, uh, we obviously, we've seen the footage. We know that Bayer Leverkusen beat Bayern Munich. But the key thing is about Chabi Alonso, really. It was a big test for him. Obviously, he's done a brilliant job over the course of the near two years that he's been in charge, 18 months that he's been in charge of Bayer Leverkusen. He's taken them from nothing to very much something. They can win the title now and probably are favourites to do so. But just talk to me about how this impacts on his future. Because I think over the course, everybody knows he's done well. But this was a huge sort of feather in his cap wasn't it I thought it was a complete validation of everything about his coaching he made a very bold team selection left out Jonas Hoffman left out Jeremy Frimpong who were two of his regular starters that was something that if they hadn't won the game if they'd ended up losing to Bayern I think there would have been a lot of heat for that but he got it spot on and they played with freedom, but they also played with structure, if that makes sense, because that was the one thing Bayern didn't have. Thomas Muller talked about it afterwards. Bayern hammered 3-0, and Bayern played a back three, which they haven't really done all season. They look completely ill at ease with it, jittery from the start. And Thomas Muller was furious afterwards. He didn't start the game. He came on. And he said, we were just passing from A to B to C with no kind of personality, no kind of freedom whatsoever. So Bayern were bad, but they were made to look worse by a really big game performance from Bayer Leverkusen. And I think, you know, in my head, I've been thinking about Xabi Alonso for Liverpool. I've been thinking, you know, is the style going to fit? you know, are there more experienced options? And it actually just ticked those final boxes because you looked at how they counter-pressed and you looked at how they were without the ball. Mm. I think Liverpool fans already take to that, given what they're used to seeing under Jurgen Klopp. So, yeah, I think it was a hugely impressive result, hugely impressive performance, and Liverpool will have taken note, I think. Yes, a good a little bit of uh, advertising for uh, Xabi Alonso's skills on Saturday evening. Um, let's start our review of the Premier League weekend at the London Stadium, where there was a performance to forget for David Moyes and West Ham United. West Ham nil, Arsenal won. Declan Rice with the assist. William Saliba climbed highest. Oh, I can't remember many of our West Ham teams playing as poorly defensively as what we played today. I think it's been a long time coming with this negative football. Bakayo Saka makes no mistake. And it's West Ham nil, Arsenal 2. No commitment in some of the actions, but you nearly had to be stronger in the set pieces. Or... Once again, West Ham have been undone from a set piece. Declan Rice with a free kick this time. Gabriel, who's nodded in. I'm wondering how many pundits will now still continue 
continue to say, what do West Ham fans want? What we want is not to be bored permanently and battered at home embarrassingly. This is absolutely incredible. West Ham nil, Arsenal four, Leandro Trossard. It could be six or seven. Are you allowed to forfeit games at half-time? Or has the manager ever been sacked at half-time? Because that's what needs to happen. Bakayo Saka with his second of the afternoon. Oh, this is the icing on the cake for Arsenal. Declan Rice has scored, and he scored an absolute screamer. Very emotional day for him. I know how much he loves West Ham and how grateful he is. Everybody has to pick themselves up, including the staff. We all have to do it as well and, and uh, get ourselves ready for what's next. Where does this leave David Moyes? West Ham's biggest ever Premier League home defeat. West Ham nil, Arsenal six. So much to talk about today, including a ridiculous handball decision at the bottom of the table. But I don't think we can start anywhere else than by starting at the London Stadium. Crook, you were there and you stayed for the whole 90 minutes. But lots of West Ham fans didn't because just before halftime, in a 15-minute period between the half-hour mark and the half-time whistle, West Ham conceded four goals. And it was nothing short of a capitulation, was it? No, it was atrocious, to use David Moyes' own words, but it wasn't just that 15-minute spell, as, as Moyes admitted himself. Arsenal could and probably should have scored many goals even before that. Mm. They were the dominant force uh, right from the off. I think uh, West Ham fans booing Declan Rice, which I still can't get my head around, uh, only inspired him uh, to assist and a, a brilliant goal. But they were dreadful, uh, West Ham. No commitment, no urgency, no energy. And I think summed up, actually, um, by Saka's second goal early in the second half, the half-hearted attempt at a tackle from Naith Aged, he should have been hauled off there and then. It was an incredible um, poor performance from a home side and will only add to those West Ham fans who are questioning the manager. No wins in, in seven now. They would have gone sixth if they got a victory yesterday, but they are on a dreadful run of form and confidence and character looks at an all-time low as well. I think it was always going to be that this early part of uh, the new year was going to be really difficult for David Moyes and for West Ham because of the fixtures that they had, but also because of the injuries and the absences that they had because of the Africa Cup of Nations. Uh, it could just going away, again going away. Obviously, Pakatar not being available at this moment in time. Antonio still not around. So it was pretty obvious that they were going to struggle a little bit. But this was different, wasn't it? This was not about struggling because you haven't got the right personnel. This was struggling because they weren't putting the right level of effort in. I sent Crook a text just after that goal that he has described, saying I would sack Naive again for his performance alone. He was dreadful. He didn't close down. He got nowhere near anyone. He made, he was lackadaisical in his approach. And that sort of summed up the whole team's performance, really. I thought Ariola was terrible, absolutely terrible. Showed no uh, conviction when coming for corners. You know, Arsenal, Arsenal the best team at dead ball situations, Kevin, in the entire league. You know that before the game. I know that. Crook knows that. You know that. What? How comes Alphonse Ariola is defenders and didn't know that as well? Well, they did know that. They just didn't act upon yeah. it, and that's a problem. Yeah, they didn't. It was quite alarming in that regard because the one thing you'd expect West Ham to be good at is set plays. And David Moyes, I think, talked about that afterwards, talked about the fact that usually um, they'd be a lot more solid in that regard. And it was a dreadful performance. There's no getting away from that. 
you know, you look at the the performance at Manchester United recently. If you look at the two results, you think, God, they're in awful form. They lost that game 3-0. They've lost this one 6-0. I thought the performance at Old Trafford was completely different, actually. I thought they were a lot bolder. I thought they actually had lots of openings. I think there has to be some perspective here, actually, about West Ham. I get the fact fans are annoyed with the style of play. I get the fact that they're on a bad run. But they're eight. They're eight. They won the Europa League group. They have beaten Arsenal twice this season already. It wasn't that long ago that they played really well at the Emirates. Yeah, These things can happen. A good team can come and give you a smacking if you're West Ham. That, that can happen. Especially so, if you're not on it. Yeah, exactly. If you're, if you're way off your level and they're amazing, which they were, that can happen. It's now how they react to it, I think. I think obviously the uncertainty about Moyes' position doesn't help anything. But I think if you do look at it with perspective, you look at what they've done in Europe in recent seasons, you look at the fact that they're in a much, much better position in the league this season than they were last season. You know, I don't think it's time to press the panic button. I don't think it's some kind of dreadful decline. And it's all right to sit up here with a helicopter view and say, yeah, yeah, we can see what David Moyes has done over the course of the body of his work. But if you're a West Ham fan, they all feel very differently about it and they voted with their feet during the game. They're obviously upset about a number of different things. Interestingly, Crook, I suppose David, probably uh, late December, and I think he'd sort of, not confirmed, but pretty much had sort of intimated that he was about to sign a new two and a half year contract at that point. And he said, we'll sort of get it done later. He has then subsequently said after the January transfer window, oh yeah, we'll get onto that now because we were just concentrating on the business during the, during the, the transfer period. Is this all just a little ruse just to shuffle, shuffle this back towards the back end of the season, really? And is there a contract in place that he can sign? Or is there an offer that is true from the, from the board? Or is there still sort of just tentative discussions? Because the, the lack of clarity around his future, I don't think helps the players. No, certainly not. Um, you know, as it stands, David Moyes is out of contract at the end of the season. It was a surprise they didn't give him a new deal after winning that European trophy. And actually, if I was David Moyes, I'd have been quite annoyed about that. But you're right. I remember us being on air uh, covering for, for Jim and Simon in December. And the vibes coming out of London Stadium were that this two and a half year deal was in place, just waiting to be signed. But the more results like Sunday, uh, maybe you could say the less likely that is to happen. I think there are problems at West Ham that go uh, into the boardroom. I'm not sure that David Moyes and Tim Steiton, the sporting director who came in, in the summer, are aligned. In fact, I know they're not um, in, in terms of transfer targets. I think they're regularly butting heads. I think Steiton felt that they needed a number nine in the January's transfer window. Moyes wasn't necessarily of that thinking. And then you look at what happened right at the end of the window uh, with the Saeed Benrama, Pablo Fornell situation when it looked like those departures might be off because West Ham hadn't submitted the paperwork on time. That's I did wonder Moyes. cynically. Well, I wondered cynically if it was deliberate because, you know, David Moyes realised actually if you lose those two players, the squad looks very light. I think they're one of the teams in the league in January who came out of the window weaker than when they went into it because, you know, there was a lack of options to come off the bench yesterday. They didn't uh, get the deal they wanted uh, over the line for Ibrahim Osman, who subsequently is now signed for Brighton or will do in the summer anyway. So I think David Sullivan is having almost to act as a go-between between Moyes and Steiton when the whole idea of appointing a sporting director was that David Sullivan could take a step back. Kev? Just very quickly, I, I think this is what happens in general when you have somebody like Steiton who's used to a continental model 
where the sporting director sets the direction of travel, sets the philosophy, which yeah. kind of players do we want? And then, you know, they involve the manager, of course, and the manager does have a veto in some cases, doesn't in others. But generally, it's the sporting director who sets that direction of travel. Moyes is old school, right? And and in English football, an old school manager has all of that power and makes that decision. So by nature, that's going to be an awkward situation until they sort out, right, whose responsibilities are whose? Because until you do that, it's chaos. Okay, but they had a bad transfer window this time around. I think we could probably agree with that. But they had a very good transfer window over the summer where they used the Declan Rice money superbly to bring in a host of very, very good players. And, you know, three good players that have made a massive impact into that team. So you could... You know, you know, I think over the body of work, if you look back at what David Moyes has done and even, you know, the new guy, the, the sporting director, what he did in the summer, it has been positive. There are going to be times, if you're West Ham, if you're Brighton, if you're Brentford, if you're if you're Tottenham Hotspur, that you're going to get beat. It's going to happen. You're going to go through spells, especially West Ham are going to go through spells because they've got a very small squad. So it's not always going to be that you're going to be able to win every game. I completely understand the style of play is not exactly what you want. Everyone wants tippy-tappy football. But actually, I think this defeat is solely and, and utterly on the players and the way that they performed on the day. David Moyes should have enough credit in the bank to be able to ride out one or two blips and bumps in the road. But the players have got to stand up and be counted on these on these occasions when they do not deliver. David did brilliantly, I thought, afterwards and came out and spoke to you. If I was him, I would be thinking about my own future. I'd be thinking I might leave in the summer rather than stick around. I know he's looking at the project and thinking I've done a good job here. I've put the foundations in place. Somebody else is going to reap the benefits. But honestly, I don't know whether or not he needs the hassle. It's not, it doesn't fit. It doesn't feel like everyone's happy with each other. And I think sometimes that working environment needs to be good, needs to be positive, right? He could go somewhere else where he might be more appreciated. Uh, Certainly, Eric Ten Hag feels a little bit more appreciated after a 2-1 victory away at Aston Villa. It was a harsh result for Aston Villa to stomach, wasn't it? Bearing in mind the chances that they had, especially in that second half period where they probably should have scored three or four. Douglas Louise missed a chance. I thought, how has he missed it? That's got to be a goal. That's that, that's unreal. Uh, but somehow, some way, Manchester United did dig in, show that commitment and graft. And Scott McTominay again off the bench, Crook. Yeah, and credit to Andre Anana, actually, probably his best performance in a Manchester United shirt. It's been a difficult introduction to English football, but he made some big saves. I think you're right on the balance of play. Uh, Aston Villa will feel very aggrieved. But let's give United some credit. Four wins on the spin in all competitions for the first time this season. They've finally gone away from home against the top eight side and picked up a victory. And it looks like a team who are playing for each other and are playing for their manager. So I'm, I'm pretty confident now. I've looked at United's upcoming fixtures. They've got a Manchester derby to navigate. But apart from that, there's a lot of very winnable games. And I think they've given themselves a chance of that top five finish, which hopefully will be enough for Champions League football. So Eric Ten Hag, I think, deserves credit because for me, he's been the most criticised manager in the Premier League this season. He's probably had to put out more fires than any other manager in the Premier League this season. But he's found a way to finally get a tune out of this team and, and get a tune out of Rasmus Hoyland in particular, who, who just looks like the most delighted bloke in the world every time he scores. And you, you have to love his enthusiasm. Well, he's a good player. And I think, you know, many, many years ago, we discussed the idea of a, a philosophy at Manchester United. If you're going to spend a huge amount of money going forward, a lot of people wanted them to bring in Harry Kane. 
I actually said to you, I thought it'd be better to go and buy a younger striker that you could build and, and make up as a franchise player for the future, even if it meant that it was a few sort of bumps in the road on the way the way through. And I don't know whether or not he's going to turn into that franchise player. I'm hoping, bearing in mind, they spent so much money on him that he is and that they've done their scouting and their due diligence on that. He certainly looks as if he's got the right attitude to become that player. Uh, and his recent goal-scoring run is impressive. But also, the way he's taken his chances has been impressive as well. So I think he deserves credit for that. The one thing that worries me, Kevin, is the defence, really, because over the course of the last few weeks, it has looked a little bit leaky and they keep losing vital members of it. Lissandro Martinez obviously out for a little while and Luke Shaw had to come off at halftime. Yeah, I, I do think Martinez is key, actually. I, I think it's no surprise that when he came back, they looked a lot more solid. Um, you know, it, it's not just his basic defending, it's his personality as well, which I think is important yeah. for that team. I, I think his ability on the ball is is hugely important for them as well. So when he's not in the team, they're simply not as good and that that's not a surprise. Um, yeah, I do think defensively there's a bit of an issue. I, I just think in general, I think it, they've made good strides, no doubt. Absolutely no doubt. I still think there's a fragility there. I still think that obviously McTominay's got them out of jail a few times um, and I have to give him credit because he is much maligned and I think there is with some players there's kind of a misunderstanding of what they are and I think he gets asked to play sometimes this deeper role in build-up that doesn't suit him at all he's a box crasher you know he's a guy that can get into the box get those headers get those goals and actually make a real impact in that regard and I think when you look at him in that way you know, it's a lot more positive. So it's about focusing what, what what he can do rather than what he can't. Just one on Hoyland, by the way. What I think's nice that we're seeing now that we saw with Atalanta in Italy is a guy who scores all types of goals. So he can bang them in from the edge of the area. He can score super scruffy goals, um, like the one he got recently off his chest that was virtually in the, on the goal line. Um, <laughs> you know, he's got, he's got that instinct. And I think that's going to be really good for them going forward. If he stays fit, I think he's going to be great. Yeah, he's a, he looks like a good player. Um, let's talk about the other side of the coin, though, because Unai Emery, understandably, a little bit deflated after the game. What has happened here? Never losing at home, then three big defeats, the Newcastle, Chelsea and Manchester United. Look, they kept out Arsenal and Manchester City when they came to town uh, earlier in the winter. But... This last couple of weeks has been very difficult for them at Villa Park. Where has that come from? I, I watched them on Wednesday. I was there on Wednesday night and I thought the problems were in midfield. They were outnumbered in midfield. And I thought Kamara had another difficult game yesterday afternoon as well. Is the problem as simple as he's only got a very small pool of players and he's having to use too many of them? And once you scratch the surface, you don't have your first choice members of that team. That's no disrespect to Matt Cash, but Esri Konzer is a big miss on that right-hand side. Does it sort of expose the... Uh, I mean, maybe they're using too many of the same players and therefore they're tired, but also some of those other players that step in aren't quite up to the level. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I thought they did look tired uh, against uh, Chelsea in the Cup. Obviously, it was a much better performance on Sunday than it was in midweek, but it isn't the deepest squad in the world. I think I said to you in the preview podcast, I was surprised they didn't bring in more senior first-teamers uh, in the window. I guess mm. they, like many clubs, are worried about falling foul of the profit and sustainability rules. But it's also where the goals come from because they don't have a plan B to Ollie Watkins. And if Watkins doesn't score, 
then they tend to struggle in that department. And also, I think that Newcastle defeat and the nature of it just made them realise they are um, mortal when it comes to their home form. So I actually think they are going to go through a dip now. And that's why I think teams like Manchester United, maybe even Newcastle, who found a little bit of form, oh, might no. see it as an opportunity to go oh, past no. them. Oh, no. Crook's starting to panic. All of a sudden, he's having to scurry around to the back of the sofa. Uh, Mrs. Crook, um, could you get down there and have a look around the back of the sofa and see if we can get any pennies? Because we might need £500 for Jim White. Obviously, he can't do it himself because his ribs are hurting, so he can't bend over to have a look uh, <laughs> to find that cash. Um, yeah, because Newcastle have started to pick up points, haven't they? And all of a sudden, Aston Villa have gone for a bad spell just at the wrong time. Um, they were attempting to record uh, successive home league victories against United for the first time in 1977, since 1977, but they always have a bad game against uh, Manchester United. They've got a tough record against them. Um, Manchester United will go on, I think, and put a few results on the board. Uh, but whether or not fifth place is enough for the Champions League, we shall see. Uh, let's move on to sun, uh, from Sunday to Saturday and head off to the Etihad Stadium because Manchester City, for a brief spell at least, went top. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrooks. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Labrooks. Odds updates on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18+, begambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. right-footed in towards the back edge of the six-yard box heading down again by Diaz it's cleared away by Tarkovsky and then Haaland is there firing it ruthlessly beyond the goalkeeper with the aid of deflection and Erling Haaland who's been out with injury for much of the winter has come back with very few touches apart from the most decisive one Four games without a goal for Erling Haaland. You knew that the big Norwegian was only just moments away from getting back on the score sheet. And with their first shot on target of the afternoon, Manchester City lead by a goal to nil. Now Haaland's been sent away by De Bruyne. He shrugged away Brambray. He's got into the penalty. He's it home. It's a brilliant Manchester City goal. A classic Erling Haaland goal. De Bruyne to Haaland, you know the next line. Manchester City lead by two goals to nil. And with top spot on the agenda, City race 
into a two-goal lead at the end of the match to kill off the Everton charge and go top of the Premier League. Manchester City beat Everton by two goals to nil. This was hard work, actually, for uh, Manchester City because Everton defended really well, Kev. Um, and actually, the the idea that they had that grit and determination and eventually the nous to be able to open up Everton sort of bodes well for the future, I think, for them because Everton's brilliant defensively. But I suppose it does help if you can turn around and go, well, hasn't worked for 70 minutes. Um, what have we got on the bench? Oh, Kevin De Bruyne, brilliant. We'll bring him on and everything changes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and they've got match winners and game changers everywhere you look. And obviously not just to Brenner, but one of those is Haaland. And when you have somebody who has those goal scoring instincts for the first goal, although the first goal from Everton's point of view is a mess, but the second goal is Haaland's to a T because there aren't many players who can just body Jared Branthwaite, who's a you know, rising star defensively. Yeah. The strength he had to just swat him like a fly. I felt sorry for the kid. He'd had such a good game and then yeah. he just mistimed it. And it was just that that mistiming of the sort of intervention just meant that he was off balance and Harlan yeah. sniffed that and just shrugged him to the floor to get out of my way and then finished it off. Yeah, it's like trying to push a freight train over. It was unbelievable. <laughs> and, the, and then the finish was super. So... I think this is the thing with City going forward is when you have a game like that where it isn't working and now they've got players back fit, they can just change it up. They can change how they approach it. And he's put together or the the club have put together a lot of different profiles of players. Mm. Uh, You know, I think of when they brought Doku in, Doku was somebody who didn't quite have that kind of one-on-one guy who can suddenly break open a, a kind of low block, if you like, by going past defenders. Grealish is a completely different type of player, I think. He's somebody who controls the tempo of a game with the way that he plays. But You've got Foden Doku's... who can sort of pop up in the middle between the, exactly. the lines and operate in those tight spaces and just make things happen when, when others really can't do that. You've got those four central defenders they started with at the weekend, different profiles of, of backline. You know, it's not the... F- you know, flooding forward with wing backs, it's is actually having four central defenders, and two of which can move into midfield. It is it is a, a variety of different player that makes up a, a a rich fabric of a squad, which is why probably everyone thinks they're favourites. Has anyone just checked on Jared Jared Bramthwaite's ribs though? After that, just looked if he sort of took one in the ribs there. I think probably I think, I, think I went down Harland. more dramatically. I think I think if he got got hit by Haaland, it's probably more damaging than you know falling on the floor after miss hitting a balloon. But I don't know. I mean, it basically depends what footwear you were wearing. Because one of the excuses Crook had for falling over was is he wore the wrong footwear to the. Well, disco. what was he wearing? What were you wearing? Slippers. Uh, I may as well have. I wore a, a, a fancy new pair of shoes with, with no grit. When if I worn the trainers that I wanted to wear, I think I might have been able to keep my footing. <sighs> Yeah, that you era. wanted to wear, so why were you denied the chance to wear trainers? What happened? Did the gaffer say that you had to wear a certain <laughs> uh, pair of cleats or something? M- Mrs. Crook always has the final say when I go out and public. I see. Does, she? Does. Okay. I see. Even on Balloon Football Day? <laughs> Even on Balloon Football Day. It wasn't wow. a pre-planned game of Balloon Football, by the way. My lad right. was kicking a balloon around, and I thought, oh, I'll go and join in, you know, be the doting dad that I am. You're just so spontaneous. That's the problem. Um, What about Everton? They remain firmly stuck in the relegation zone. Seven league games without a win. I mean, look, 
I spoke to Sean Dyche afterwards and my question to him was this. When are you going to find out about this initial appeal? Because we know now that it's mm. been a week since they heard it, right? So they heard it. They, it finished last Friday, not the Friday that's just gone, the Friday before that, the appeal against the 10-point deduction. We need to know. The Premier League needs to know. Luton Town need to know. Nottingham Forest need to know. Other teams around Everton need to know what they're dealing with here. Are they dealing with a team that have had 10 points taken off them or are they not? Is it six points? Because Luton need to know what they need in order to stay in the division. Surely this needs to happen sooner rather than later, Crook. And of course, after they've given this one, they've got the other one that they've got to, to dish out as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the timescale that, that Everton put on it last a couple of weeks ago was, was mid to late February, but that... You know, that, that covers a, a big period of time. And I think the lack of clarity, surely, that you know, that the independent panel should be able to give them some kind of indication as to when a verdict will be reached. And as you say, even after this appeal, the next charge kicks in, they appeal that one. And there is a possibility because under the Premier League rules, uh, I think the, the, the final decision on that second appeal would need to be made by the Premier League AGM, which is actually after the final game of the Premier League season. Now, we're not going to, we're not saying 100% that it goes to that point, but if it does, you could have a scenario where Everton, Luton, Forest maybe, don't know after the final whistle of the season has blown whether they're safe in the Premier League or not. And I don't think anybody wants to get to that situation. I think we need to be a little bit careful there because that is, you know, if you read the, the documentation, actually what that is is a backstop. That is the point at which everything stops and nothing can go forward from there. So it has to be resolved. Everything has to be resolved on that date. And that's five days after the end of the season. Um, so that it's almost a little bit like a, a sort of, I don't know, a buffer to make sure that everybody knows that we, this won't be dragging on through the summer and we won't be worrying about who's going to be in the Premier League midway through June or July. But... I think what needs to happen is a better level of communication. I said this on the podcast last week with, with Scott. We were talking about open communication. You don't need to necessarily go into the details about what has happened with the charges and what charges and what the points of discussion are about why you're appealing. But you do need to tell everybody what to expect, how long it's going to take, and be constantly updating people so that the, the, the other clubs that are involved in this and affected by this can make plans. It changes everything. If you go into a game between Everton and Luton, and Luton need, at this moment in time, one point to get beyond Everton, but actually then three months down the line, they actually needed three points to get above Everton, then that's, that's an unfair scenario because it changes the way you approach that particular match. Now, I don't know when that match is or, or whether it's in March or April or whatever. It doesn't matter. The fact is you need that level of clarity before you attack certain fixtures. That's just the way it is. I would agree with that. I, I think it is all a bit village at the moment, the way it's been handled. I, I, I think the problem you've got here is obviously we look at the sporting side, but we also like to look on the business side on this podcast. And I think that's a really good thing because actually these are multi-million pound businesses. These yeah. are huge financial entities and they are going to be seriously affected. And then you've got the danger of, you know, legal challenges down the track. I know this has obviously been an appeal, but, you know, there is the possibility, you know, if clubs feel they've been hard done to and feel they want compensation and feel that they've been cheated out of money, 
this could get very, very messy. It's it, This was always going to happen in the sense that, you know, somebody was going to have to pay the piper eventually. These sanctions were always coming. You know, the clubs knew this. The, these rules have been in existence. I know they've changed slightly, but they've been in existence for a long time. And so it's now just that these... Yeah, and they voted for them. So now it's just that, you know, these sanctions are coming. So... I think they should have been prepared for that. I think there should have been a clear timeline. And as you say, at every stage of that process, everyone involved, and that includes all the Premier League clubs, need to be fully informed of what the situation is and what the dates are. On the field of play, Everton's big problem is they don't score enough goals. They defended really well during this match and had a couple of skirmishes. In fact, two good chances during this match. Dominic Calvert-Lewin has now gone 18 games without a goal. Um, and, and yes, they've got their set-piece threat. Yes, they've got the the goals of Abdullah Decore that he crashes the box and and scores every now and again. But he's been out. He's played in one of the last eleven games. Abdullah Decore. He's still the top scorer with six goals. Unless you find a way of scoring more goals, you know they've got the fourth worst attack in the league, fourth best defence, and the fourth worst attack in the league. Unless you change that markedly, you're going to find yourself in relegation trouble anyway, Crook. Yeah, the Calvert-Lewin situation is the big concern for me. I think he had their only shot on target. It was a really tame effort from the edge of the penalty area. It was the shot of a player lacking conviction, lacking confidence, lacking belief in his own ability. And unfortunately, I think he's just been shot to pieces by the number of injuries that he's had. Obviously, they signed Beto for a not insignificant fee. He doesn't necessarily look up to Premier League standards. So you do worry about where the goals are coming from and... Um, if they do fail to get this 10-point deduction overturned, I'm not convinced they get enough points to get past Luton, who I think, despite the fact they had a poor result against Sheffield United at the weekend, particularly at home, will will pick up victories. And they do score goals, Luton, which Everton yes, they do. Don't. Yeah, they do. And listen, one of the great things about Luton is that they get people into the box. I've noticed so many times over the last two weeks when I've done the Everton games, they get balls in the box, they get crosses into the area, but there's no one to finish them off. The amount of times the ball's gone flashing through the six-yard box and Calvert-Lewin's three or four yards behind that, he's got to get in there or someone's got to get in there at the far post and convert those chances because unless they do, they're going to find themselves in serious bother. Uh, Let's go to the other side of Merseyside. Kev's smiling again because Liverpool beat Burnley by three uh, goals to one and Klopp's men back on. Top after um, three great headers, Kevin. Yeah, uh, there were. And, you know, another example of, of Jota and how amazing, mm. you know, pocket rocket he is. I mean, the, the leap that he has is extraordinary. You have to give Burnley a lot of credit. You, they made big, big chances um, at 2-1 down and really should have equalised. Fofana, who obviously did well, um, you know, recently when he got those two goals really should score. Certainly, mm. you know, I think the second one, I think the first one's a good save, actually. I think it's really good from Gallagher. But I think the second one, he should score. So, you know, Burnley will go away disappointed. I think it shows that Liverpool, you know, do always let you play, do always give you an opportunity. But, you know, it's another good win and it's a good reaction to what happened against Arsenal. And Darwin Nunez, again, the force of nature that he is, uh, impressing again. So good to see that. Good to see that. Uh, Klopp and company, uh, not happy though. It wasn't good to see this. They were protesting. They were upset. Uh, they both ended up getting booked as a result of it. Um, it, it. I just wonder whether or not, if you're Vincent company, it gets to a point where you've just sort of, kind of sort of 
have to do something completely different. I know he, that they've, well, philosophy, 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 but isn't the sign of something, someone who's got the ability to, to adapt to, to situations actually a, a greater asset, really? Because if you keep doing the same thing, you're going to find yourself in serious trouble. I mean, he has been pretty repetitive over the course of the season. Play okay football, but naively to allow people to have opportunities. Therefore, their better players score goals Yours, when you create them, don't score goals. You lose 17 games by the middle of February. That's not a recipe for succeeding in the Premier League. Maybe they're not worried about that. Maybe they're happy to be West Brom 2.0 and come up, get the money, go back down, rebuild, come up again, maybe stronger next year. Or is it is it Norwich 2.0? I can't remember. They wanted to be the, tw- <laughs> the top 26 club, didn't they? Um but it's, they got Arsenal next. And, and I can see them getting well beaten in that game as well, Crook. Well, yeah, I'm just looking there. They probably need seven wins to stand any chance of staying up. That would take them on to 34 points, which usually uh, is the sort of ceiling to keep yourself in the division. That means they've got to win half of their remaining 14 matches, Burnley. They've won three games all season. Their goal difference is minus 25. Only Sheffield United, who've taken a couple of Tonkings, have conceded more goals. They've got no chance. Have they? So the changing philosophy at this this late stage of the season is almost a fruitless exercise. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think Vincent Company has been given too much of a free pass. I think Burnley have made no impact on the Premier League at all. And this is not a club who didn't spend money in the summer. They were one of the biggest spenders, in actual fact, in the summer transfer window. And for me, they have very little to show for it. Isn't that because though they had so many players on loan last year, a bit like Nottingham Forest, they had to replenish the squad. So there was mitigating factors. Uh, let's head to the very bottom of the table now for a game between the relegation rivals. Luton won Sheffield United 3. Luton, yeah, not themselves, weren't as good as they have been in recent weeks. Sheffield United, better taking advantage. But come on. Come on. This game, far too heavily influenced by two absolutely ridiculous decisions. Stupid decisions that should have been left well alone. Two handball decisions. The first of which, Sheffield United given a penalty when no one appealed for it. An arm is in the air and I understand under the current laws of the game, the arm being this high, even if you're jumping like that with your arm like that and the ball comes from behind you from one yard, apparently under the law that is a penalty the referee must have seen that the assistants must have seen that because everybody saw it and just played on because they thought accidental handball now obviously accidental handball is not in the law it's just handball if you make yourself intentionally bigger in the penalty area outside the penalty area it has to be deliberate but inside if it hits your hand and you've deemed to make yourself unnaturally bigger you can have a penalty given against you there's all sorts of different caveats, or the distance, blah, blah, blah. But once your arm goes above your shoulder, apparently the guidance is, that's it, penalty kick. Ridiculous. David Ellery, the IFAB, hang your heads in shame. It is not your game. Nobody likes it. Nobody likes you. Everybody's sitting there thinking, this is ridiculous. We can't stand it. We're all pulling our hair out and you're sitting there rewriting these handball laws every single year, changing your mind of what is handball, what isn't handball, what should be a penalty, what shouldn't be a penalty. You're so out of touch with the game, it's frightening. You're out of touch with the game when you used to referee it. You're out of the touch even more now. 
get down to your local park and see what really is handball and find out what people in the game really want to be a penalty because this is nothing short of a disgrace. The VAR re-refereed this game from the, uh, the referee that was on the field of play and it's completely and utterly wrong. The second one is even worse. The geezer's trying to protect his face. He puts his hands up in front of his face like that. He thinks someone's going to crash down and elbow him on the top of his head and as he went to pr goes to protect his head, it hits the, the top of his hand. How is that a penalty? It's absolute idiocy. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I would. Um, and I think it does stoke those passions because I think there's such frustration now with how complex the law has become and the guidance and referees seem, uh, you know, ill at ease with it as well. And I think it needs to be completely redesigned because handball penalties are having too much of an effect on games. There's it's no doubt the about it. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And I think, you know, you look at the first one, I look, I can kind of get the first one only because the arm is out in the way that it is. Yeah. Okay, fine. I get that. I don't like it, but I get it. The yeah. second one is is nonsensical it's for pathetic. all of the reasons you've said. He's looking the wrong way. He's in a really awkward position, like all crunched up anyway. How is that gaining an advantage, really? I mean, it, it it's a nonsense. It's not a clear so and obvious error either, by the way, is it? The, the, you know, the VAR doesn't have to intervene yeah, there. Sure. He could have just used his sure. common sense and gone, actually, the referee didn't see it, but it's not the worst thing in the world. It's not like a massive clangor. But they're so terrified now of missing something. That's the, that's the thing. They're, they're so terrified of not, give, not giving that advice. And then, you know, it, the following few days, everybody's like, oh, that should have been a penalty and what have you. I just think this all stems as so many things in the game do now. Exactly what you've said, IFAB, the way the laws have been designed, some of them, it, it's just nonsensical. It, may, it, it just, it ruins games. You cannot have a situation where you've got interpretations of the laws that ruin the game they're supposed to govern. Absolutely. It's ridiculous. And this is a multi-billion pound product. And if you're ruining it with decisions that nobody's happy with, like who's really happy with these? The refs aren't. They don't no want one. to give these things. The referee doesn't it's the want refs to give who get the penalty. heat for it, but they don't want to give that. So the refs aren't happy, coaches aren't happy, players aren't happy, and fans aren't happy. So what's this for? So it does. I agree with you completely. It needs to be totally redesigned, simplified, so that we all know where we're at because it's way too complex. Just use one word in the penalty area: deliberate. It gives you wriggle room. It yeah. gives you the opportunity to turn around and say, "Was that deliberate? Do I have to give that?" Yes or no. Simple as that. If it's deliberate handball and it's deemed by the... The referees are not stupid. They're educated people yes, that have gone through exactly. 17 years of going through different levels of football to understand the movements of a football player. Trust those people to make their judgment, which is, was that deliberate? Will he have a look at it? And if he has to have a look at it a second time, fair enough. In which case, he will then make his call and it's down to him. But what you're doing at the moment is, is you're making it almost impossible for that guy in the middle to make a call. You're, also, you're encouraging somebody else who's miles away, who's got no feel for the game because they're sitting in a booth somewhere, watching it going, but the technical uh, detail of the law says I have to give a penalty in this zone and ruin a Premier League game. It's just annoying. It's totally annoying. I share your frustration. I, I think, thankfully... 
the, the penalty decisions didn't make a difference to the outcome. I think Rob Edwards will be honest enough to admit that Sheffield United were much the better team and they deserve to win. Actually, Rob Edwards said that he wouldn't have given either penalty and I think we all agree with that. I think the worst decision of the weekend for me was the one in the Forest-Newcastle game when they haven't given a penalty against Dubravka when he clearly catches our knee. VAR have had a look at it. The referee, as they pointed out on television, is too far away from the play to really have a view that's where you want VAR to intervene, not on ridiculous handball calls. And actually, I think Ariola was very lucky. And again, it didn't change the outcome because he got battered anyway and he was responsible for it. But well, he, he probably should have been sent off for yeah. the penalty. You can see on Saka. So again, we've had this weekend and we said it before, we, we, when, when one set of decisions go awry, there's, there's almost like a domino effect and it becomes a bad weekend for VAR and for the PGMOL in general. Too many of those weekends have been that way, though. That's the problem. And too many of those weekends have seen results change as a result of bad decisions. And, and the Nottingham Forest one, you might say, did change the outcome of the game. Yeah. Whether you agree with that being a penalty or not, surely it is a, it's, 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 a less, it's a less controversial intervention than the one that gives the penalty for Vinnie Indeed. D'Souza. And that is half the issue, isn't it? It's like, if you're going to be really pedantic, all of you be pedantic, if you're not going to be pedantic, then all of you back off. You know, have some semblance of sort of team philosophy and approach to the way that you're refereeing these football matches. Anyway, uh, I've obviously fallen out with David Ellery. He's never going to speak to me again. Good. I don't want to speak to him anyway. Um, but uh, you know, that, that's that's just the way it is. I, I'm so annoyed about this because I do think that there's they sit in their little ivory tower changing these little technical words in the in the law book and don't think about the impact on it you know the other also the ridiculous thing about the sim bins which nobody wants or whatever and you can discuss the merits of it maybe in youth football or whatever but elite players do not want to get involved in that referees don't need that extra card in their pocket right but yet they fly this kite like a political party at the beginning of the the, the week saying oh we're thinking of doing this wait for the reaction and go no we weren't doing that that's nonsense yeah. it's rubbish you know it's it, it, they're, they're treating everybody like fools it's not fair anyway uh, kev it was lovely to see you and uh, i'm so pleased that you're back um, it's lovely to be seen and <laughs> I know you had a tough weekend because not only did you do those big games, you also went out on the Raz with Derek Ray. Um, <laughs> so I know that that means, uh, you know, you stayed in your later hails until at least 4am on Sunday morning. Uh, Crook, your ribs all right? They survived the podcast? Yeah, just about. Well, you're not that funny, luckily, so all good. <laughs> oh, dear, well, listen, as long as you can breathe. I know, I know bruising a rib playing balloon football is a lot more serious than breaking it back if you as you've told me all all over the weekend i'm sure you'll be back in the gym soon uh, uh right that's it from us we'll be back on thursday for the preview podcast where we look ahead to some big fixtures in the premier league and have a look back at some of the champions league stuff that's happened this week there is champions league football uh this week as manchester city are back in action we'll see you soon the premier league all access podcast is proud to be brought to you by ladbrook's the latest odds, we set them. Form guides, we've got them. Expert opinions, we share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Labrooks. Odds updates on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, 
a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.